It's from Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. It's Amos chapter 7, 10 through 17. In your pew Bibles is page 813. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us again, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being with us. It's so good to have Miss Arlene with us. We look forward uh, to continuing worshiping with her and serving God together. She's a very sweet, wonderful lady. I don't know about you, but in my house growing up, there were a lot of arguments about who was the best driver in the family. I remember one time, and I think we got the idea from Brady Bunch, my sister and I actually went out into the, the front of our house and we set up an obstacle course and, and the very last thing was a cone with an egg on top and we drove the vehicles through there and see who could stop close uh, without knocking the egg off. Maybe you've had that debate from time to time, and the other day I ran across an interesting news release. It was from San Francisco-based company, the Quality Planning Corporation. And it was an insurance research firm. Who do you think are the best drivers in America based on career? Well, they started with the worst, testing 14 million uh, reports that had been given with the Department of Motor Vehicles. And they found out that the worst drivers in America, the drums are rolling, students. If you're enrolled in classes, you are considered the worst hazard on the road today. Now, second to students, out of a long list of over 40 occupations, medical doctors. They may can heal the people once they arrive in the emergency room, but odds are they have a good chance of putting them in the emergency room. <laughs> the third worst drivers are attorneys. And the fourth, we have a few here, architects. And uh, the fifth worst is real estate brokers. Now... You'd have to read this list all the way down through the 40-something occupations, but I thought it was interesting. Who are the best drivers out there? Well, the last five or six 
occupations that are considered by the reports the best drivers in America today. Number six from the best, those in ministry. Number five, homemakers. Next, politicians. Next, pilots. Next, firemen. Who do you think's the best? Everybody ought to know. It's the farmer. The one who's operated more machinery than anybody else alive, usually beginning at five or six years of age, driving a tractor and etc. You know, if Amos was alive today, people might still not want to hear what he had to say, but odds are he'd do very well on the roads today because Amos not only was in ministry, but he was a farmer. The text we just had read for us there, he didn't want to claim a place in ministry. Did you notice the text that was capably read? He said, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. But yet, what was he doing? He was there prophesying to the people, not because he'd gone to the training schools for prophets, but because God had asked him to carry out a message, and that was the message that he was carrying out. But he says, if you want to look at the way I look at myself, he says, I don't look at myself as a prophet. I look at myself as one that is a sheep breeder or one that herds sheep. And as a matter of fact, in the first chapter, the first verse, we see that his town was Tekoa. Tekoa was known for a very ugly type of sheep that produced a very expensive wool. The sheep were nooked or nooked sheep. And they were known throughout the region for being a very expensive breed of sheep because of the wool that it produced. And so Amos says, just think of me in that sense. That's who I am. But also he said... I also am known for the sycamore fruit that I work with. The sycamore fruit is something that's unusual to us today in exactly what he was talking about, but the fruit had to be pierced in order for it to ripen so that humans could consume it and enjoy it. And so you can imagine the job of going through and piercing every fruit. And so if you ran upon Amos and said, Amos, who are you? He'd say, I view myself as one that tends after animals and looks after produce. And if God asked me to do something, I consider myself one that would do that also. And it just so happened, He's asked me to prophesy. Today, we're going to study some about Amos. And if you'll come back tonight, we're going to look at the man in the book in more in depth. But this morning, let's just take the time to look at one passage of Scripture and let's drop back to the fourth chapter. In Amos, the fourth chapter, some have considered the fourth chapter a micro version of the entire nine chapters. It's in this fourth chapter that we see warnings against their sins. We see punishment that God is going to give to them. We see also the opportunity of repentance that God is going to give. And finally, the plea for them to prepare to meet God. All of that is in the fourth chapter. And if we were going to outline the nine chapters, that's pretty much an outline of the nine chapters also. So it's interesting to take just a moment and study some out of the fourth chapter so that we can understand the writing of Amos better. Let's read the fourth chapter beginning at verse 1. He says, hear this word. Now that's how these few chapters in through here begin. It's the prophet saying to the people, this is a word from God, hear this word. Don't you know he wasn't concerned about political correctness? Can you imagine what he's about to say? Can you imagine a preacher standing up today and calling people cows? 
Here's what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. Prize cows. If you grew up on a farm, you probably wanted prize cows. If you study the book of Amos, you find out that that's the last thing you want. It's a prize cow. Who were the prize cows? Cattle Bashane are known not only in the book of Amos, but if you'll notice, we drop back to Psalms 22. In Psalms 22, the psalmist, in giving a prophecy of the Messiah, He also speaks of these same cows, just showing you as we read this text that this is something that they knew about throughout the regions. It wasn't something that was just something of a part of a region and no one else would know about this. Notice what he says in Psalms 22 and verse 12 and 13 as David is wanting to say here, look at all the powerful, large, uh, strong enemies that surround me. He would say it in this way, Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. What was David saying? He's saying there's this breed of cattle that they're known because they grow up in the fertile pastures of that area. That area was known for two things. Fertile pastures and strong cattle. Cattle that grew larger in size and stronger in health than most cattle in other areas. It was considered to have something if you purchased cattle from that area and if you could raise cows that had been brought from that area. And so something that in the livestock industry of Amos' day was something to boast of, he takes and puts a twist on it and says to them, oh, you're boasting about yourself. In other words, their houses were larger than other people's houses of that day. Their riches were so much greater than other people's riches of that day. You can imagine that their clothing must have been so much grander than other people's clothing of that day. And so where they were thinking, look at me, how great and how rich and how powerful I am, Amos says, you cows, let's take a look at you. You want to see how great you are? Let's see how pretty that cow is setting up in that mansion up in the hill of Samaria. That brings us to a second point. Not only the cows themselves, but let's see those cows sitting on the mountain of Samaria. Samaria was built upon a hill. If you can imagine a valley basin with a hill or a mountain upon it, Samaria was built upon that mountain. What was unusual about Samaria is that surrounding hills and mountains, some of them were actually taller. And so the idea was that people could come up to these other Uh, elevations on the surrounding mountains, and even though Samaria was in a hill and on a mountain, it could literally be looked down upon. Others could come surrounding hills and look down to see what is happening in Samaria. And so that's the vision that Amos is painting here as he's writing to them God's Word to say, you cows, what are other people seeing as they assemble on the mountains around and they look in to see how you're living. Drop back, if you will. We don't have a slide for this, but drop back to the second or to the third chapter in verse 9 and 10. And your pew Bibles is back just a page or two. Amos, the third chapter. Let's see what others saw as they gathered around to see. And these others, by the way, are foreign nations that have been enemies of God and enemies of Samaria. Let me mention this, just interrupt this point just for a moment. 
those of you that, that know your Old Testament a little bit, this will be a point of interest that will place things in mind for you. I should have mentioned at the very beginning. This is 200 years after the divided kingdom. He is one that lived in the southern kingdom, being sent by God to the northern kingdom to prophesy to them. The northern kingdom is going to fall in just 30 years. Now that's a short period of time. It's going to fall in just 30 years. But he is coming into this nation at a time and place that they are living in luxury. Today, if someone comes into America, are they going to say that country is filled with poverty or are they going to say that country is filled with riches? If people come from other areas of the world, they're going to say that country is filled with riches. That's the situation that Amos finds himself in. He's going into a nation that is filled with riches and he has the responsibility to tell people that think they have everything they need and they can provide anything that they need for themselves. He's telling them, you don't have the most important thing in your life. You've left God. Now, if you know anything about mission work and about campaigns and about teaching and preaching, you know that he has his work cut out for him. Because oftentimes, whenever we're sitting in the lap of luxury is the very time we don't think we need anything. So if you're wondering, why was Amos... So, so coarse. He's probably trying to shock them. Here's people that don't think they need anything. They have everything they need. And he's trying to get their attention. You cows, look how the heathen nations are even looking down upon you. And so now we go back to the third chapter here, and this is what the heathen nations see. Amos the third chapter in verse 9 and 10. We do have that one on a slide. I'm better than what I thought. Okay, proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod. That represents Palestine. And in the palaces of the land of Egypt, those two were wicked, strong enemies against Israel. And so he says, okay, let's see what, what those of uh, the Philistines are, are seeing as they look upon you. And let's see what uh, those of Egypt see as they look upon you. And here's what they see. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. That's where they're going to sit to see this. See great tumults in her midst, and the oppressed within her. They do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Heathen nations are sitting, watching the evil that's going on in what at one time was God's people, and their jaw is dropping. What's happening? They've reached the point they don't even know what is right. Remember a few weeks ago when we studied the lesson on uh, immorality in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, that spiral down that Paul told us about and eventually reached the point that they're past feeling. And then they begin to be involved in all lewdness and they give themselves over to a greediness to, to practice all uncleanliness. In other words, that's where these people were at this point. They did not have any compass that gave them moral guidance. They were just ready to do wrong and didn't even know that they were doing wrong. And you say, well, what was the wrong that they were doing? The wrong that's mentioned here is the fact that they had their palaces and God says, instead of looking at that as a house of luxury, I see how you bought that house of luxury. You oppressed the poor in order to get it. Through violence and through robbery, you've built your places of riches and you've looked down upon those that you've hurt with no compassion. Cows. 
luxurious cows on a mountainside. Now let's go back to our text in Amos the fourth chapter and let's see the three things. We've already made reference in part to some of them, but let's see these three things that he lists that these cows have done in building their luxury. We're in the fourth chapter in verse 1. The first thing he says to them, who oppress the poor. In the second chapter in verse 6, and I don't think there's a slide for this one. In the second chapter in verse 6, listen how they oppress the poor here. For three transgressions of Israel and for four... I will not turn away its punishment. Why? Why is God going to punish them? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Here is someone that's living a righteous life, trying to serve God, and one of these cows living in the palace says, Oh, I'll do business with you. You want to buy my grain? It's going to cost you so much that you're going to have to sell yourself as a slave to me. You'll be indebted to me. And you say, well, I just wouldn't do it. You listen to your babies cry morning and night for food. You see a land where there's no other place to obtain your riches or to obtain your meals. The only place you can buy them is from the cows that live in the palaces on the hillsides. And ultimately, if you love your children enough, you'll go knocking on the door and say, I'm ready. We've made it as long as we can make it. I can't make it any longer. I have to have some wheat to take back to my babies. And you sell yourself for a few pieces of silver into slavery so that your family can eat. And what does that do? Now that they have another slave, they can just add on to their mansion. And he says, you didn't even have to pay silver for the poor. You could buy them for a pair of sandals. Friends, I need to let this sink in, the reality of what's being said here. A man selling himself into slavery to provide shoes for his family. What cow would be a part of that socioeconomic standard? Of all people, it wasn't the wicked Egyptians, and it wasn't the wicked Philistines, it was the people known as Israel. God's people had left God to the point they were the ones that were causing the neighbors to come on the neighboring mountains and look over and say, can you believe how they treat each other? Have you ever seen people out in the community see a church that fights and bickers with each other and those out in the community just watch from a distance and, and their jaw drops and they say, can you believe how they treat each other? Amos is going on behalf of God to say, look what you're doing. You're turning into fat cows in a palace on a hillside, and the way you've done it is by oppressing the poor. The next line in our text, he says you crush the needy. We can see this again in the 8th chapter in verse 5 and 6. It's similar things that we've already said, but let's see it one more time. Amos the 8th chapter 5 and 6 saying, When will the new moon be passed that they may sell grain and the Sabbath? That we may trade wheat. Make the ephah small. In other words, that was a measurement of wheat. Make it small and the shekel large. Falsify the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Even sell the bad wheat. Friends, this story just keeps getting worse the more we read it. 
So here he says, oh, I can't wait for that time that the poor are going to be so desperate for grain that they come to buy the grain. And let's just use measurements we're accustomed with today. We say, you know, usually we sell this 10 pounds uh, for a dollar. We're going to say it's 10 pounds, but we're going to falsify our scales and we're going to really make it 8 pounds. And instead of it being a dollar, we're going to make it $3. And when the people come, they can't afford to feed their family throughout the year on this kind of rates. And so eventually we just buy them. The only way you can take grain back to your family is you have to become ours. We'll buy you for silver if we have to, and if we don't have to pay that much, we'll just do it for a little pair of sandals. Friends, at the very time that they ought to have been giving, these cows were taking. At the very time that they ought to have been comforting the needs of the needy people, they were torturing the people. But not only not giving them what they needed, but enslaving them. And then finally we go back to our text and we see the third thing that he mentions in verse 1. Where these cows are pictured, the implication here, they're probably lying down on their couches. And they're holding their wine goblet up and they're saying, Honey, husband, it's time for some more wine. How are they going to afford that lifestyle? Doesn't it cost a lot to be addicted? Whether you're addicted to materialism or alcohol or drugs, how are you going to afford that kind of lifestyle? Go crush a few more needy people. Go rob a few more of the poor. Then your husband can go out and buy more wine. Then you can sit in your lap of luxury up on the hillside and you can indulge and you can drink, and you can look at self all day and all night and never serve anyone. Friends, that is the plea that Amos makes to ask them, will you recognize yourself for whom you really are? Wouldn't you agree that sometimes that's one of the hardest things for us to do? To see ourselves for whom we really are? I wonder how many of us in this auditorium, those points that we just studied this morning, I wonder how many of us are guilty of at least one of those points, and we're sitting here right now saying, those shameful people, they shouldn't be like that. But what we need to be thinking, am I carrying any of this same guilt in my life? Let's mention a few points by application, not to develop the point, To develop the point will be up to you, but just to see how wide of a range that these applications could be. As we ask ourselves the question, are we fat cows sitting on a hill? When we think about taking when we ought to be giving, we ought to ask ourselves, are we a married cow? You know, marriage is give and take, but how many are in marriage as sponges? They're just ready to take and take and take. Over 900 couples were surveyed among counselors to find out what they believed, the couples believed, was the greatest hindrance to them having a good marriage. The highest listed hindrance that was in common that wives said that they experienced from their husbands that was damaging their relationship was selfishness. To take when they ought to be giving. Ephesians 5 teaches us that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, as they love themselves, and to nurture and to cherish their wives. 
We are a married cow if we're taking as we ought to be giving. Another example would be an ungodly cow in that we're robbing God. The very time we ought to be giving back to God, instead we're robbing God. In Malachi the third chapter, that's how the eighth verse begins. Will a man rob God? And they say, how have we robbed you, God? And he says, because you haven't been giving your tithes and your offerings as you should. He says, now go back and give your tithes and your offerings and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you can't hold. What's the point? The point is every week God gives to us and God expects us to take a portion that is already His and give back to Him. And if we're not doing that, we are robbing God. Just as the rich cows were going down in the valley and robbing the poor, we're going up to the blessings of God and we're robbing God. Friends, I don't need to live in God's house because I've robbed, because I've stored up His blessings in my house that I ought to have been giving back. I don't need to drive God's car in the sense that I've stolen from God to buy that car. I don't need to be going on vacations that I have robbed God in order to go on that vacation. The very time that I ought to be giving to God is not the time that I need to be taking from God. Then we see another example as we think about inflicting pain upon others when what we ought to be doing is comforting. We think about as a congregation. We have the opportunity, according to Hebrews 13, to make the elders' task a joy or to make it a grief. Everyone in the congregation has one of those two options. And we need to say, well, am I inflicting pain at the very time that I ought to be making their job rewarding and comfortable. Another example is comforting others. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, teaches us that God will comfort us in all of our tribulations, but yet we're to take that same comfort and pass it on to other people. Have you gone through any hardships in your life? Did you receive any blessings from God during that? Has God comforted you during that time? Do you realize that then we have a responsibility to turn around and find someone else that's experiencing something that we can share and comfort them in the same way that we have learned to be comforted of God? If we stop that cycle, we're actually leaving undone what God has planned to be carried out. But then the third thing that we see under this as we consider ourselves, are we indulging when we ought to be serving? When we study in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we learn that instead of being drunk with wine, whereas is in excess, we should be filled with the Spirit. What happens when people are filled with wine? We know what drunkenness is. What happens when people are filled with the Spirit? Instead of allowing alcohol to move us to do things that we should not do, we should allow the Spirit of God to move us to do things that we ought to do. And with that, we could study Galatians, the fifth chapter, and see the long list of the works of flesh. All of those things should be avoided in our life. We should not indulge in those things. And then we see the fruit of the Spirit. And all of those things should be a part of our life. Because we've stopped indulging and we've started serving. Now let's make this quick point as we close or move this lesson to a close. Now please get this. When we spend our life indulging in things that are wrong, it takes our heart and time off of service to others. What does an alcoholic think about? Well, let me see how I can serve my family today. 
Let me see how I can serve my God today. Let me see what I can do good for my neighbor today. No, no, and no. He thinks about how he can put alcohol into his system. What does a drug addict think about? Let me see what good I can do for my family today. Let me see what good I can do for God today. No, no, no. They think about how they can put those substances into their system. Why? We can do that with just using any of the works of the flesh. What do we think about when we spend our life in sexual addiction? What do we think about when we become gossipers? We just think about more and more what we can gossip about. And it's just on and on with every sin. Put the sin behind us. Let's stop indulging in those things. And when we stop indulging in those things, then we can honestly say, Lord, here I am. I want to serve you. I want to be used by you. Amos is saying to these people, look what you've become. But the problem is they didn't even realize it because all they could see was how to fulfill their future wishes of indulgence. Now what was going to happen to them? He identified who they were, and let's quickly note what he said was going to happen to them in verse 2 and 3. The Lord God, this is still Amos, the fourth chapter, page 18 on your pew Bibles. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks, and will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into harm, and says the Lord. What's he saying here? He's telling them in about 30 years, Assyria is going to come in if they don't repent, and they didn't repent. And he says, here you are living in this lap of luxury. Let me go ahead and tell you, God says, how the Assyrians take their captives away. About nine out of ten of you are going to die. But those of you that have the fortune, (laughs) not much of a fortune at all, to live, it's a hard word for us to translate into English. So in the King James and New King James, it says fish hooks. What it is, it's the same concept of putting a ring through a cow's nose. But what the Assyrians would do, would put a ring through the lip. And that's how they would lead the people as captives. Oftentimes, they would even lead them to their execution with that. They would take some of the individuals, especially kings that they wanted to torture, or those in high command, and put a sharp stake in the ground. And they would take that ring through their lip on a long string, and they would continue pulling the person until their weight was totally over the stake. And then they would just hold them so that they could not back And slowly, slowly the person would tire until they stabbed themselves to death. God says, I don't want this to happen to Israel. But this is the path you're on, Israel. Your nice fine houses, you won't have to look for the front door to walk out of them. You can walk straight ahead in any direction because your palaces will be destroyed. You won't have to look for the wall of the city to walk around. You'll be able to walk through any part of the wall because it'll be down. Throughout the next several verses, God says, I'm going to give you warnings. I'm going to send pestilences. I'm going to send mildew. I'm going to send drought. He says, I'm even going to send men into battle and let them lose. This wasn't the ultimate loss. Just those battles along the way. He says, I'm trying to get you to wake up. 
I'm trying to get you to see how important it is to turn back to me. And he says, but if you won't do that, and then finally, and we close with this, the 12th verse, Amos the 4th chapter, finally he says, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now friends, he's not just talking about on the day of judgment. That is the ultimate end, to prepare to meet God. But he's saying as all these things arrive, you just keep in mind, I'm the one you're really facing. You're not really facing Assyria. You're facing God. You're not really facing drought. You're facing God. You're not really facing mildew. You're facing God. You're not really facing locusts. You're facing God. And he says, I want to show you where you are. God says, you're over here. I want to show you where I am. I'm over here. And if you don't want to move to me, you decide then if you want to face me and see who wins the battle. Friends, please, please listen to this. You want to live your marriage without God? Prepare to meet Him. Because He's already said what happens when we don't have God. You want to raise your children without God? Prepare to meet Him. Because He tells us what happens when a generation grows up without God. You want to live a life of materialism? Prepare to meet God. Because He shows us how temporal life is. You want to stand on the day of judgment and not know God? Prepare to meet Him. We don't have to be opposed to God. We can be on His side. Children build sandcastles on the ocean beach. They work so carefully, and oftentimes it's a beautiful project. But then as the night rolls in, the waves come in, and the children begin to scream with excitement as the waves come. And finally takes away their castle and they cheer as it's been dissolved. What's going to happen to your house one day? Your nice house. The one you say, I've lived all my life to live in this house. What's going to happen to those assets that you have built up and stored away one day? Symbolically, one day we're all going to cheer and we're going to say, the end of time is near. The end of time is near. And we stand before God on the day of judgment and for all those that are saved, it'll be the best day that we've ever experienced and everything on this earth will be dissolved and burned up. Are we going to put our life in permanent spiritual things or are we going to put our life in temporal things? Cows living in palaces put their life in temporal things. This is not suggesting that anyone with money is cows. We're defining cows exactly as Amos did. Those that have their hearts set upon it. This morning, let's make sure that we leave here prepared to meet our God. Prepared. Because we've submitted fully to God's way. If you've never been baptized into Christ for remission of your sins, won't you do that this morning? If you turned away from God, won't you prepare this morning to stand on His side and not opposed to Him? If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.